Uh, if you've been with us uh, any length of time, you know that we're in the middle of a uh, series called Reasonable Objections. Um, kind of at Easter, we said, you know, we said, hey, the resurrection is real, um, and, and there's power in it. Uh, but if you're a skeptic, you might think that that's a little bit nuts. Uh, and there's a lot of good reasons to think that Christians are crazy. So this, um, this series is for skeptics. Uh, also for, um, if you're, a, if you're a person of faith, but you don't know how to answer some of the objections that your skeptical friends might raise, well, this is for you too. Uh, we started out, we talked about science and faith. Um, we talked about, uh, sexuality, uh, same-sex intimacy, same-sex attraction, stuff like that. We've talked about hypocrisy. Uh, we've talked about, what did we do last week? So, what is it? The Bible, yeah, whether or not we can trust the Bible. It's like it all runs together at a certain point. Uh, whether or not we can trust the Bible. Um, today, we're going to talk about, it's just one fun topic after the next. Uh, this one, is a, it's, it kind of was raised really most poignantly recently by Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist um, provocateur. He uh, was a very voluble and outspoken critic of religion. In fact, his, uh, his, one of his most famous books is God uh, is Not Great. You know, How Religion Poisons Everything. It's a, a barn burner of a book. If you hang out on the uh, atheism subreddits on Reddit like I do, you know this book gets uh, talked about quite a bit. And uh, he, he wrote it really in the wake of 9-11 um, and, and saying, hey, uh, this, would, this wouldn't happen if you know, the, the gods that these re- religious people worship weren't so bloodthirsty. He's like, I mean, it's not just 9-11. We've got the Crusades. Um, we've got all kinds of things in history where it seems like God's a really bad guy. Uh, Hitchens, if we can bring up the, the sort of formal way that Hitchens might have said it, uh, he might have said that in the Old Testament, God isn't loving or good. He's a war criminal. Not only does the Bible sanction genocide, but Christians use those texts to justify being warmongers. Even if that God is real, it would be wrong to worship and serve him. And this is a, this is a very famous objection to Christianity. It's like, God's, if, if the God of the Bible is real, that God's bad. That's a bad God. Uh, because God does these crazy things. We're gonna hit that head on today. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna look at probably the most, uh, controversial text in the Bible where God absolutely decrees genocide. Um, and skeptic, I hope that by the time we're done today, I hope that, that you'll see that uh, maybe you've missed some of the context. Maybe there's more there than you thought. Uh, Christian believer, I hope that you learn a little bit something new and, and maybe frightening and scary, but also wonderful about the God uh, that you, you, you serve and, and the way that that God is depicted in the text. Um, I'm reading from an edited version of the Common English Bible just because Old Testament texts tend to be hard to understand. But let's read, let's just read it, uh, right out. This is Deuteronomy 20, uh, 16 to 18. This is, this is about as bad as it gets. Uh, God says to his people, but in the case of any of the cities of these peoples, the ones Yahweh God, your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not spare any living thing. Indeed, you must destroy these as an act of cleansing, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, just as Yahweh your God commanded you. Then they can't teach you to do all the detestable things they did for their gods, with the result that you end up sinning against Yahweh your God. Um, let's, yeah, let's look a little bit closer here. Uh, Right, right up front there, you must not spare any living thing. Uh, not only is God commanding um, the destruction, 
of men, women, and children. God is also commanding the destruction of anything that breathes. That's the literal translation of the Hebrew there. Anything that breathes, including uh, and not limited to livestock and various animals. What God probably has in mind here is uh, when the Israelites come across any of these, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, what they're going to do is they are going to um, engage in, in battle, and when the battle is over, they are going to burn everything. They are going to burn it all. And uh, this follows up in this next part of the text. You must destroy all these as an act of cleansing. Uh, if the older translations will say things like, um, you must do uh, this, you must put the following under the ban, sometimes it'll say. Or uh, you mu- it, the problem is, is that there's a Hebrew word behind this. It's called harem. And uh, this word can mean, it gets uh, translated destroy, uh, devote. Ban, outlaw, uh, it, it, it covers a, it's hard to know what to make of it. And the reason for that, the reason for that is that, uh, in English, we don't really think about, um, destruction and violence as something that's religious or sacred. Okay? We, we tend to think of violence as something really, really bad to be avoided. Uh, and, and I hope you'll see that God agrees, but in, um, in this, in this, in this world, in, in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, there is a notion that um, that there is a something religious and sacred and ceremonial uh, about this act of genocide and violence. I just highlighted Amorites because they're going to come up uh, again near the end of the sermon, so just keep them in the back of your mind. Don't forget about them. Um, but but for, for now, let's just take a look at uh, the next slide. Um, the, all Americans, so Americans uh, agree, and really pretty much everyone in the West, if there's one thing that unites everybody, all of us, Whatever your socioeconomic background, uh, race, you know, anything, no matter who you are in our culture, you agree that the most evil thing ever is cancer. Everyone agrees cancer is the worst. Um, we've seen a lot of people in our, in our congregation affected by cancer. Um, we, we got, we got, Scott here, he's got cancer. He's living with uh, Doreen when she's here. She's, she's living with. It's an awful, awful disease. Uh, the way cancer is typically treated is this. Uh, so f- you go in for your physical or whatever. The doctor recognizes something's wrong. You go in, they take pictures, x-rays, whatnot. They find a tumor, okay? They find a tumor. And then what they do is they schedule a surgery, they try, if they can, and, and they, they take out the tumor if it's operable, Right? And then what happens? Then they put you on uh, chemotherapy. This is the standard sort of way that we treat cancer. It's changing, God be praised, because it's a pretty horrific process. And we are making some huge breakthroughs, um, thank God. Uh, Scott's an example of that and, and the miracles that are taking place. Nevertheless, the standard kind of traditional way to treat cancer, we take out the, the, the tumor. We then go on chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is essentially poison. It's just a really, really nasty poison. And you ingest it, or sometimes it's injected. It depends on, on, on the treatment process. But what goes on is, is that everything that is anything looks at all, anything like cancer at all, is obliterated by this poison. The result is that people are sick. They're miserable. Um, in fact, you know, chemotherapy can, in a way, kill you. So there's this, there's this balance that doctors have to, to, to make between, you know, how much of this drug to give you to purge all this, this, this evil cancer out of you. And at the same time, like, recognize that as it's doing, it's gonna hurt good stuff too. There's gonna be good things in your body that's, that's gonna get 
blown out by, by the chemotherapy. It's, it's kind of a scorched earth policy. Cancer is so dangerous, so evil, so awful, that we can't do anything but go for total eradication. Okay? Total eradication, even though, even though that's painful and damaging to the body. I want to suggest to you that uh, the way that God is thinking of these six tribes, the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, you can, sometimes the Bible refers to all of them as Canaanites or the people of the land of Canaan, so we can just say Canaanites. Uh, But the way that God thinks of them is he thinks of them like a cancerous tumor, okay? And and we'll explain that in a second. He thinks of them as a cancerous tumor, and then the danger is this cancerous tumor, like, like like a malignant tumor in our world, can spread, Okay? It's spreadable. What can spread? Well, um, these people were worshipers of the god Molech, um, depicted there on the left. The god Molech was a, uh, a bloodthirsty god. Among many forms of, of, of blood that the god Molech demanded was the blood of infants and children. Uh, the Canaanites were pr- practitioners of child sacrifice. Uh, and not just child sacrifice, but also um, the total murder of anyone around them who did not bow the knee to their god Molech. They were also worshippers of the goddess Ashtaroth. Uh, she's on the right there, various depictions of her from the ancient world. It may not look like pornography to you, but it was pornography to them. Uh, in order to worship the goddess Ashtaroth, uh, ritualistic rape was a part of the, um, the worship of the Canaanites, uh, not only um, in a religious context, but also when they encountered other people. Uh, raping uh, was a way to honor the goddess Ashtaroth. It's difficult for us uh, as 21st century Americans to understand what a culture like that is like, but let me just suggest to you that it is about as evil as we can possibly imagine. Um, That these were a people who were completely consumed by bloodlust and sexlust to the point that they were willing to and did do anything that the mind could possibly imagine to satiate those desires. It's difficult, again, to imagine, but uh, try to imagine what it must be like to be a child raised in a culture like this, where violence and sex are worshipped above all other things, where um, pleasing and satiating the gods requires you to have blood on your hands um, and uh, violent sexual practices um, as a part of your uh, growing up. Imagine what that might do to warp and destroy your mind and change you from a person that we might call innocent to a person that's been wholly and completely corrupted. These six tribes um, God looked at, and, and we'll see, has been looking at for a long time, and God is convinced that if anything survives, then his people are going to be infected by it. Uh, like just a few cancerous cells begin to multiply. You know, you take out the tumor, great, but if you leave any of those cancerous malignant cells, that they, they rapidly multiply, they take over the body again. And if anything survives, uh, then the, the Israelite people are going to be corrupted, and they too will uh, fall into these practices. In fact, we know that this is true. We know this is true because for the most part, the Israelites disobeyed God. They did not commit harem. If you follow the, the, um, if you follow the narratives, you'll see that for the most part, the Israelites, it, it, they couldn't handle it. It was too violent. 
um, and in some cases they were too greedy. Uh, and so they, they didn't do this. And we, as, you, as you see the Old Testament story continue, you realize that the practices of the Canaanites infiltrate Israelite religion. And the Israelites themselves find themselves tempted to and often practicing horrific, horrific um, acts of so-called worship. Because you can imagine, um, you know, imagine that God said to you, I want you to completely wipe these people out. I mean, nuke them, Right? It would be pretty difficult for us to, you know, say, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. In fact, we might want to say, no, let's absolutely not do that. God's convinced that, um, at least in this case, that that will end up uh, very, very badly. This is the first thing in your note sheets. Harem is God's solution to demonic evil that can no longer be contained. Skeptic, you are right. God does uh, command genocide in the Old Testament. Um, and we just have to own that. We have to own the fact that uh, at least the Bible believes that there is an evil so great um, that at a certain point, the only thing uh, that can be done is um, total and complete destruction. In fact, uh, the way that the, the word harem, it, like I said, it's a religious term. It's, it's very similar to how the, the Jews would clean the temple to purify it before they could worship. It was like contaminated, and so they did things like sprinkling blood, and they had various rituals that would clean the temple, make it holy, make it pure. In a similar way, the land had been so corrupted by these Canaanite tribes that, the, that God demands like a ritual cleansing, a purification. Wipe it all out so we can start over again. Now, if you're a skeptic, you might be willing to agree that there might occasionally be, very rarely, on the, you know, maybe these tribes really were that bad. Occasionally, there might, be, and very, very rarely, be a circumstance where something like this would be better than the alternative, okay? Maybe you're willing to, to step into that. The question then is, but how much does God do this? Like, is God, like, is this like a one-off for God, or does God kind of like, ooh, who do I get to eradicate next? Right? Because if God announces this harem and, and does it frequently and over and over again, then you start to wonder, ah, was it really that bad? Or are you just kind of a bloodthirsty jerk? Well, I, what we didn't read, we didn't read the, the text just before um, the, the, the command of harem. Let's, let's read that text, and I, I want you to start to see some of the context, how God actually thinks about all this. So here's the context, starting in verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you should first extend peaceful terms. If the city responds with peaceful terms and surrenders to you, then all the people in the city will be your subjects. However, if the city does not negotiate peacefully but makes war, you may attack. The Lord your God will hand it over to you. You must kill all the city's males with a sword. Um, that probably means you, may, you need to kill all the, the warriors. Uh, it would be assumed that anyone who could you know, hold a weapon would be the, the one that you're killing, uh, but not just slaughtering men. Um, however, you can take for yourselves the women, the children, the animals, and all that is in the city, all its plunder. You can then enjoy your enemy's plunder, which the Lord, your God, has given you. Ah, uh, what are they, pirates? It's a little better, right? It's a little better. It sounds okay. It's better than, like, total and complete destruction. It's better than slaughtering the women, the children, and, and, the, and the, the animals. But, but gee willikers, this still sounds pretty bad. Well, maybe a little context would help here. First, note that this is uh, what God commands of everybody except those six tribes. 
The vast majority of the area is not going to be subject to Ram. Ram is, is reduced. It's, it's just for those six uh, tribes that were really, 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 really bad. Anybody who's unaffiliated, the vast majority, is going to be subjected to these terms. Um, and the first thing that God says is, uh, extend peace. If they're willing uh, to, to just let you rule, then they'll, you'll, they'll be your subject, subject to your law. Um, sometimes that gets translated uh, forced labor, but that, I think, is wrong for a reason I'll discuss in a second. I, I think subject is much better. The, old, uh, the New King James, uh, forced to pay tribute, I think is a good rendering there. The idea being that they're going to be part of your country and they're gonna, you'll, you'll tax them, essentially. Um, What's going on here, and what's the deal with all the uh, the women, the children, the animals, and the plunder, and all that? Well, the first thing to think about uh, is, if you're familiar with our nation's military, you know that uh, we have a picture of uh, some rangers there. Um, we have, uh, in the United States of America, probably the most restrictive rules of engagement in military history. Rules of engagement are the uh, the rules that you have to follow if you're in combat, Okay. If you're in combat and you're a, and you're a member of the United States Army, there are things you were not allowed to do, right? Uh, in fact, this is a way that we're trying to make war uh, something less horrible, okay? Uh, so, for example, there's no raping and pillaging allowed for our military. That's pretty unique in world history. For the most part, when people attack each other, the point is to take their stuff. Uh, this is not available for our military. In fact, uh, we go out of our way to prove that we're not doing that, right? Well, the interesting thing about uh, the Jews and or the Hebrew people, the Israelites, is that they had rules of engagement too. And it's not just what we read up there. The rules of engagement that are set out for the Hebrew people are actually set out in the Torah, the law, the instruction. The Torah has some very, very specific rules about how you are to treat people who are not Israelites. And what's interesting about it is it's actually really, really nice. If you lived in the ancient world, the one people that you would want to rule over you if you weren't one of them is the Jews. Because they had to be kind to you. They had to leave you alone for the most part. In fact, the only thing that we're really allowed to do to you for the most part is try to, over time, assimilate you into their religion. We read and we sort of, it sounds like piracy, hoisting the black flag and whatnot when we hear things like, you know, plunder and all that. Uh, but really what's going on is, is when they conquer a city, if the city puts up a fight, they fight, they win. And then they make that city subject to the rules of Torah, the rules of resident aliens and immigrants in the ancient, in their texts. And those rules are very, very good. They're allowed to, you know, engage in commerce. They're allowed to continue living the way that they live for the most part. And they're invited over time to become Jewish, become Israelites. So even though it sounds like bad stuff to our ears, in the ancient world, for the, uh, this would have been sort of like, they were like radical progressives, right? These were, the, the, the Israelite people were the ones who, like, who like came in and they're like, we're going to do war as nice as we can. And that's sort of how they thought, which is interesting that that's sort of how we try to think about it as Americans. We want to do war as nice as we can. And moreover, if and when we win, we want to be as kind as possible. Well, that is a very Christian, Judeo-Christian attitude. That's what the Jews did. Once they won, they wanted to be as kind as possible. They wanted to be peaceable, and they wanted to assimilate. It's next thing you note sheets. The overwhelming majority of people conquered by Israel were taken peacefully and assimilated. 
And you should note then that the harem was, was restricted by God for a very small group of people whom God saw and said, those are cancerous tumors. But everything else we can work with. And you're thinking, wow, okay, okay, maybe, 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 maybe. Okay, this is better than what Christopher Hitchens wrote in his exceedingly ignorant and totally unlike researched book, which was a bestseller. Um, so, so maybe we're there, but still, I'm just, I'm a little bit... Here's the thing. Okay, you're worshiping this God. Did he think it through? Is this really the best sort of plan, right? Did God, I mean, couldn't, we, couldn't God have figured out some other way to deal with these people than the harem? What was God up to? What, was there some kind of master plan in, in mind? And, and is that plan something we would think of as merciful or good? Let's go back. This is, um, this is from Genesis. This is, uh, this is well before. This is hundreds of years before um, the harem. Then Yahweh said to Abram, you might know Abraham from the Old Testament. He's the, the sort of the first Israelite. God's talking to him and says, Have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, Egypt, where they will be oppressed slaves for 400 years. It's interesting. Uh, that word oppressed slaves is a much... Um, so the, the Jews are going to have other people subject to them. You remember that te- text in Deuteronomy, subject? Oppressed slaves is much worse. Okay? Uh, the, the Israelites were going to welcome other people into their community where they actually were, were tortured, more or less, for 400 years. But after I punish uh, Egypt, whom they serve, they will leave it with great wealth. And as for you, you, you Abraham, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried after a good long life. Then this, the fourth generation will return here since the Amorites, remember them? The Amorites' wrongdoing won't have reached its peak until then. God's talking to Abraham. He's telling him the future. This is what's going to happen. Here's the deal, Abraham. Uh, Your descendants, my chosen people, whom I love and want to protect, they're going to be Slaves for 400 years. That's bad news. Abraham might be like, but why? Why can't they just go to the land? Why do they have to be in Egypt for 400 years, you know, living as slaves? What, what possible reason, God, could you have for letting that happen to this, this people, my descendants, whom you say you love? Why would you do that to them? When Abraham and God are having this conversation, um, he's actually in the land of the Amorites. Okay? He's, he's sitting there, and he's observing how bad they are. And God says, the reason I'm going to do this 400-year sort of like you know, purgatory for you and your descendants is because I want to make sure that I give these Canaanites, these Amorites, these Hivites, these, these whore, every possible opportunity to change. Look, you, Abraham, you and I, we can see that these guys are on a bad path right now. And I'm telling you, I've, I know what's going to happen. It's just going to get worse. But I, I could not live with myself as God 
If I did not offer every single possible opportunity, every merciful path, every, I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be God if I weren't infinitely merciful. So I am willing, Abraham, I am willing to subject my people, whom I love, to slavery for 400 years so that no one can accuse me of not being compassionate, of not being merciful, of not giving every opportunity for that cancerous tumor to be removed. For them to turn back, for them to repent, for them, uh, you might think of Jonah and Nineveh, for them to recognize their wrongdoing and turn from it. I'm willing 400 years of putting up with them as they get worse and worse and worse and worse while I watch my people languish in slavery so that no one will ever think that I am anything but the most merciful, loving, compassionate deity there could ever possibly be. Can we skip to the tolerance slide? This is important. The uh, English language is being hijacked on a lot of fronts. This is uh, a child's um, definition of tolerance. Tolerance means appreciating and respecting differences in people. You may have heard uh, the phrase celebrate diversity, I think is what's kind of going on here. People are different. They come in all shapes and sizes, and that's cool. It's neat. It's a good thing, which I don't disagree with. I think that's awesome. But that is not what tolerance means. The next slide is tolerance. There are sick, sick people, hopefully none in this congregation, who choose to put dogs and cats in the same house and force them to live together. Cats look at dogs and they're like, you're weak, dependent, you're a failure. Look at your, look at your ancestors, they're wolves, they have way more dignity than you, you're awful. Dogs look at cats and they're like, what, you're just basically a vicious predator in a small, small, and, and, and I'm glad I'm bigger than you because you would tear my eyes out. But here's the deal. When they're forced to live together because they have sick human masters, the two tend to put up with one another. The dog will like, they stay away for the most part. The dog is kind of looking at the cat being like, I should kill you because it would make the world a better place. Um, but I'm going to let you go because, you know, the leader guy seems to like you so much. The cat is like, who knows what they're thinking. But the, the, the point is, is that they're like, they, they have a detente. They tolerate each other. They hate each other, but they are willing to live together for a greater good. Okay? The, they despise one another. It's not like the, cat, the dog's looking and being like, wow, you're great. I should be more like you. No! Instead, they're like, they're like, this is awful, but we've got to do it because it's important, you know, because the, the master wants it. Similarly, God looks at child sacrifice, the butchery and slaughter of other peoples, the, um, the sexual slavery, uh, all of these, all these, the ritual rapes. He looks at all these, and he's like, this is not good. but I love you anyway. And so I'm, I'm just going to wait and see. I'm going to see if there's... I know, I know how this is going to go. I mean, God's literally letting the, the death toll just rise for 400 years. He, he's, he's allowing these people to just keep doing what they do. Because he loves them. 
And he wants to see a change. He wants to see repentance. He wants to see something different. He knows it's not going to happen, and yet he still, still can't be anything but merciful, but tolerant. So the next thing in your notes. God tolerates Canaanite evil as long as he can, even though it means his own people must languish in slavery. Skeptic, I hope that even if you're still like, that God's still a little bit crazy. Fair enough, I kind of agree with you. God does come off as crazy a lot in the the Bible, but I would say crazy in a good way. Like crazy merciful, crazy loving, crazy compassionate, crazy good. But I hope that you'll see that, that really, it's not that God's going around being like, who can I kill next? It's that God is constantly going out of his way to avoid killing anyone. But God also recognizes that this is a world where evil is real, and sometimes you just you get up to here, and, and you have to stop it. Because it's just going to spread. And skeptic, you are right. Uh, the, these texts have been... Um, terrifically misused by by Christians um, in the past. You're right that sometimes um, Christians get uh, a little bit too excited about uh, war and violence. uh, I'm going to confess to you, skeptic. Uh, In 2003, I did too. I have the next slide here. Um, There on the left there, you can't read it, but this is... uh, this is near one of the entrances to Arlington National Cemetery. It's, a, uh, it's basically on April 25th, 1980. Uh, there was a, in, in Iran, they were having tumultuous times there, and they had American hostages. And uh, Jimmy Carter um, tried to save those hostages. He, he led a rescue mission go forth where there were, you know, these helicopters were going to fly across, across the desert and um, get these hostages and take them home. Uh, I think there was a sandstorm or something went really badly wrong, and... Uh, the, the helicopters were lost. I bring this up because uh, when I first visited Arlington National Cemetery in the eighth grade, uh, my dad pointed to this pl- plaque because at the bottom left is uh, Major Lynn McIntosh, United States Air Force. My father trained uh, to be a pilot with Lynn McIntosh. They were friends. My dad uh, served four years in Vietnam flying KC-135 tankers, refueling SR-71s over the communists. He came home, he felt despised because uh, the country did not uh, respect or honor his sacrifice, and he uh, lost a friend in 1980 uh, when his helicopter crashed. He showed me this uh, in order to sensitize me to the reality of war. When you're a child and you're immortal and you think that things are awesome, you think that war is a beautiful, rad, amazing way to become a hero, blah, 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 blah. But of course that's not true. I didn't listen in 2003 after September 11th. I um, was full in support of you know, inva- invading Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all those things. The difference between me and uh, my friends is that I didn't actually serve. I, uh, I served myself, and I, I did things that were good for me. I don't regret any of them. I thought it was an, I, I had a great experience in my 20s, and I loved it. But um, my friends, uh, they took seriously the call to action, and they served. I don't have one friend who served between 2003 and the present day who has not lost somebody that they love dearly in Iraq or Afghanistan.
Moreover, of all my friends who've come back, um, I would say the vast majority have dealt with um, horrible, horrible symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome because of what they saw and experienced um, while they were serving their country. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. Uh, just a quick shout-out. If you, if you know, Memorial Day is the day we honor the fallen dead. It's not a day where we celebrate our freedom. Uh, it's not a day that we... No. That what we're remembering is um, those who paid the ultimate price. Like Lynn McIntosh, born in 1946, died at 33 years old. My dad's friend. There's a reason why God comes out of this way to avoid war. If you think for a second that God's bloodthirsty, you're not paying attention to the way the Bible's telling the story. God is doing everything he can to avoid violence. He knows what it does to people. In fact, it's not just the, Isra- it's not just the, the victims of the Israelites, the Canaanites, who suffer. The Israelites live with the violence and the blood on their hands. Can you imagine committing those atrocities? For the greater good. God not only sees that, but then God in in his grand plan steps into history as Jesus Christ and accepts the consequences of violence into his own being at the cross. It's not like God's just some, some... bystander who's just watching and commanding little, little troops on, on, on to, to go and kill each other. No, God steps in and allows himself to be violated, denigrated, in exactly the way that humans have been doing to each other throughout the millennia. God goes, does everything he can to avoid it, to run, to, to pass over it, to move beyond it, to give us other ways of going about it, and yet it can't, we, we human beings just can't quit. We just can't quit killing. And so God himself accepts that into his own being in Jesus Christ in order to save us from sins like the lust for blood and the desire to kill. So skeptic, uh, I confess. There was a time when I should have listened to you and I didn't. I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't have done the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or should or shouldn't. I'm not, I don't want to make a judgment about that. I only want to recognize and to acknowledge that I did not see what war is. And I regret that. And yet, skeptic, I, I think that there's a challenge. There's a challenge for you. I think there's also a challenge for us here, uh, for, for believers, uh, Christians, um, if you're in the Bible church and, and you're a Christian, I think the first thing that, that these texts raise for us is, is a question. You know, the Bible shows that God does everything he can. An absolute last resort is war. It, he only uses it when evil is so great that it cannot be stopped. It's, it's a tumor. It's a malignant cancer. And only then does he step in and say that we've got to stop it. My question to, to Christians is, are, is that our modus operandi too? Or have we maybe been a little bit too eager to um, put our beloved service people in harm's way? And should we? 
You know, I think that the Bible gives us some really good ways to think about what we should, how we should think about war, how a just war, a good war, whatever. Um, we need to be really serious about the fact that God's not a big fan of killing. Sometimes it has to happen, but man, that's rare. And certainly the, the, the harem is a one-off. That is never to be repeated. I mean, God, God when, when, her, when just total destruction has to happen, God will let us know, trust me. Number two, um, I don't want uh, Coast to be one of those places where um, people who have served their country are, are despised. This happens a lot um, with, uh, with people who are very, very passionately anti-war. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm passionately anti-war um, or pro-war either way, uh, but I'm definitely for honoring um, the people who've done their time in the service. And, and at the same time, I want to be able to be honest and to acknowledge how bad war is and how it does damage and how it does really require a lot of healing, radical healing from God for people who come back. So church, let's, um, let's, let's honor and respect and love, and, 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 but let's also not, um, let's not glorify violence, death, war. For you skeptics, a couple of, couple of challenges. Number one, have you really encountered genuine evil or grappled with its reality? The, this whole defense of God kind of hinges on whether or not you think that there's a possibility of something so evil that God has to eradicate it. If you don't believe that, then this will not be convincing to you. But I would suggest that you probably have never encountered firsthand really horrible awfulness. The first time I went to Haiti... I stepped off the plane and I was like, this is a hellscape. Okay, this is not good. I don't like being here. There is no hope. That was like within four steps of getting off the plane. I immediately knew that. And Haiti's not that bad, relatively speaking. Haiti is not Canaan, okay? The Haitians aren't going around like ritually murdering each other. If you have not experienced genuine barbarism, a complete lack of civilization, you might need to step back before judging God who has. Number two. Is it possible that really the best and most loving response to something might be violent? I mean, I think most of us would say, well, okay, so if someone's coming at me with a gun and, um, and they're going to shoot me or shoot my kids or whatever, then it's okay, it's good for me to stop that person, right? Is it possible that that's what God was doing when he commanded the destruction of the Canaanites? He was looking at what they were doing. He was worried that that violence was going to take his kids and was going to wreck them. And it had to be stopped. And might that be just? Might that be loving? Might that be, hate to say it, good? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray um, especially for the families of those, uh, you know, gold star mom types who uh, in the past, um, you know, 15, 20 years, have lost uh, children 
um, spouses, parents to um, arms conflict, primarily in the Middle East. And I'm also going to pray that uh, we would have our eyes opened to God's um, love for people and his desire for peace. Gracious God, um, this Memorial Day weekend, we, we ask for a comfort from your spirit for those who are grieving the most. We ask that you will find um, ways to bring about redemption and hope in the hearts of those who've lost um, spouses, children, parents, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends in armed conflict. We thank you, God, for their willingness to sacrifice, for their willingness to believe um, in the ideals of of freedom and be willing to protect and stand uh, in the gap and stand up for them. May you honor uh, their memory and their legacy in and through us in this congregation. But God, we also pray uh, that we will catch your heart, that we will see that you are not a God who who loves violence, but you are a God um, who loves peace. And may your desire for peace, may your desire um, to see peaceable assimilation, peaceable change, Uh, May that be our heart too. May that be our first response. May we be a people who are are seeking the good um, of others first. And Lord, for any skeptic here, God, I just pray that uh, their eyes will be open to see that you really are a compassionate, loving God. And that your first and last words are love. Your first and last words are faithful commitment. That that is the nature who you are at your core and that sometimes that requires extreme measures. We bless you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.